Well, our subject this morning is not the easiest subject in the scripture to uh, expound. I hope you'll uh, understand that and pray for me that I might be enabled to do it properly. Our subject is the subject of hell. And we have here one of perhaps around four uh, sustained sections in the New Testament on this subject. It is a subject, though, that pervades all of the Bible, the Old Testament and the New Testament. Now, of course, the very existence of hell is denied by theological liberals, by Jehovah's Witnesses and many other religions, as well as by all so-called secular people. However, it is a specific and a somber and continuous note in Christ's teaching although by no means the only note, by no means. It is not just, therefore, an Old Testament teaching. In fact, it's often been pointed out that more perhaps was spoken on the subject of hell from Christ's lips than any other of the biblical prophets. And there's something within us and there's something within every person in this world who knows, whether or not they will admit it, that it is God's truth. Now, we mustn't believe, because this subject is taught explicitly in the Bible, that therefore God is eager to send people to hell. Of course, that is not the case, and he doesn't desire that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. On the other hand, it's not a hidden or absent theme in the Bible. And then just one other introductory comment we must understand that it is the Bible alone that has accurate teaching on this subject. There are many ideas abroad. Uh, Some of them have come from within Christendom. Many religious traditions about hell. But if they're not founded on the scripture, then they are at best speculation and at worst plainly inaccurate. So I want, using Mark 9, the section from verse 42 to 48, to just ask a few questions about this subject. And the first question is this, where is hell? And we have to say that hell is not just a state of death. One of the things, if you know some of the language behind the Bible, the Greek or the Hebrew, you'll know that there are various words used uh, for the place of the departed, including the words Hades or Sheol. And often, although not entirely, those words, when they're used, describe a state of death. In that sense, they're neutral. They're not saying whether the person concerned has gone to heaven or to hell. But hell is not just a state of death, nor is it merely a state of mind. Hell is a place, a place like heaven created by God. So we have, uh, just to give you one or two other references from the lips of Jesus in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 30, a very similar word to this in Mark 9. If thy right hand offend thee, cut it off and cast it from thee. 
For it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. Or in chapter 8, verse 12, as he speaks about the children of the kingdom being cast out into outer darkness, there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Or just one more reference in Luke's Gospel, chapter 16, verses 23 and 26. Uh, in the parable, if it is a parable, in the story of Dives, the rich man and Lazarus, we read that the rich man died and was buried, and in hell he lift up his eyes, being in torments. And verse 26, besides all this, Abraham says, between us and you there is a great gulf fixed, so that they which would pass from hence to you cannot, neither can they pass to us that would come from thence. And you'll notice that the teaching in Mark 9 is clearly based on a place, into, into hell. That is spatial language. That is location language. Into hell, into the fire that never shall be quenched. The word that's used here in Mark 9 is the word that is uh, in the Hebrew tongue, Gehenna. And it's a word that's actually based on a physical location. It's, if you like, um, using a physical location as an illustration of a bigger reality. And the physical location is the Valley of Hinnom, which is southwest of Jerusalem. It's a valley that's still there. And it was in this place in the Old Testament days where the kings of Judah used to sacrifice their children, their little ones, by fire to the god Moloch. And they used to cause their little ones to pass through the fire, as they put it. It became also known as the high places of Tophet. And the whole valley where this abominable practice took place became a symbol of uncleanness. It later became a place where rubbish was tipped and the carcasses of animals and even sometimes unburied criminals. It became a place where continually there was burning of that rubbish and of those carcasses and uncleanness. There was continual burning and smoldering and hence a symbol of the everlasting torment of hell. And you'll notice the repetition. Into the fire that never shall be quenched and the fire is not quenched. So just as the word paradise, meaning a garden, an oriental king's garden, is the symbol of a bigger reality of heaven, so Gehenna is the symbol of this bigger reality, this place which does exist because God made it hell. The second question we need to ask is, who goes to hell? And the answer to that is only but all those whom God sends there. No one goes there unless God sends them, but all whom God sends to that place go there. That is clearly right there in the teaching of Jesus. Again, let me give you quickly a couple of references. In Deuteronomy chapter 32 and verse 35, a verse made famous in 
church history because this was the verse on hell that Jonathan Edwards preached on. 500 people were converted or traced their conversion to hearing this, this one sermon. As he preached from Deuteronomy 32, verse 35, he speaks, God speaks here, to me belongeth vengeance and recompense, their foot shall slide in due time. For the day of their calamity is at hand, and the things that shall come upon them make haste. To me belongeth vengeance and recompense. And then in Psalm 9, the psalm that we read earlier, verse 17, the wicked shall be turned into hell and all the nations that forget God. And the Lord is known by the judgment that he executeth. So it is God who sends people to hell or some to hell. And this leads on immediately to the next question. Why does God send or will God send some people to hell? And the answer is very clear. None of you are going to be surprised at the answer. It is punishment for sin. For original sin and for actual sins. For sins unrepented of and unforgiven. And Jesus here makes reference to one particular sin. This is the context that leads into this teaching on hell. Whosoever shall offend one of these little ones that believe in me, it is better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and he were cast into the sea. And we mustn't just limit this to the thought of children because these little ones... They often stand in the teaching of Jesus for those who are young in the faith, little ones in the faith. So the deliberate misleading of those who are young in the faith, those who are coming to Christ and turning them away from Christ is one of the worst sins. And we know in the Bible it's identified as one of the worst sins, a false prophet, a false teacher, someone who causes people to stumble at the truth. It says, Jesus says, it's better if you picked up one of these millstones, which donkeys haul, something like 50 kilograms, and put it around his neck and drown him, it's better that he should never live than that he should commit this particular sin. But you see, any one sin can become a sin which causes others to stumble because sin is infectious. Sin transmits, sin creates an example, it creates an atmosphere. And so we find that all sin, uh, and I could read you long lists of sins in the Bible, I'll just refer you to the Ten Commandments. Uh, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not steal, shalt not kill, thou shalt not bear false witness, and the sins against God, every sin unrepented of, will send people to hell. Now we know from the teaching of Jesus that there are degrees of sin and degrees of punishment. So for example, in Matthew chapter 11 and verses 22 and 24, he says it shall be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than Capernaum. It shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for thee, as he speaks to the cities around Galilee. They had had a better opportunity, a greater opportunity, but they had refused the truth. They'd refused overwhelming 
light and evidence pointing them to Christ as the Messiah and Saviour. And so it will be worse for them. But it's still hell for all. We need to understand from the language here in Mark 9 and in 2 Thessalonians 1 and Luke 16 and Revelation 20 and other places that hell is not a place for reform. It's not like prisons, which to some extent should be a place of reform in our country, but it is a place for punishment. It is a place for the glory of God. Psalm 11 makes that clear. A place where God is to be glorified. Verses 6 and 7. Upon the wicked he shall rain snares, fire and brimstone, and an horrible tempest. This shall be the portion of their cup. For, notice this, the righteous Lord loveth righteousness. His countenance doth behold the upright. These are verses that Robert Murray McShane preached on powerfully as he brought out that the raining of snares, fire and brimstone and a horrible tempest upon sinners was a a reflex of the fact that the righteous Lord loves righteousness. Or in Romans chapter 9 and verse 22, what if God willing to make his wrath, sorry, willing to show his wrath and to make his power known endured with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction. That's part of a longer argument, but the point is this. He's making his power known. He's making his wrath known. Now, God's glory is definitely more magnified in his grace, in his mercy, but it is also magnified in his justice and holiness. And so we have to say, if your God is not like that, then he is not the God of the Bible. There are plenty of people this morning, including in so-called places of worship, who would say, my God isn't like that. Well, that may be the case. It is the case, but then he's not the God of the Bible. He's not the God who punished Sodom and Gomorrah. He's not the God who sent the universal flood. He's not the God who punished the rebellion of Korah by causing the earth to swallow up that rebellious family. He's not the God of the last judgment. He's not the God who sent three hours of darkness and the cry of dereliction to Jesus on the cross. For the God of the Bible, the true God, would rather part with his own son than part with righteousness and holiness. Yes, God is magnified by his grace above all, He considers judgment to be his strange work. He has no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but he doesn't dispense with judgment. He doesn't dispense with hell. And Christ underlines it by the constant repetition in this passage. Into the fire that never shall be quenched, where their worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. Three times. We then come to the question, what is hell like? What is this place like, this awful place? Firstly, we have to say it is a place of the total absence of God's favour. Contrary to popular 
we might say, religious tradition, including evangelical tradition, the triune God is not absent from hell. He is present, but he is not present as a mediator, as a savior. He is present in wrath and anger. And that is why the wrath of the Lamb is such a dreadful experience. It is a place of outer darkness. It doesn't mean to say it's a place where there's nothing. The problem, we may say, with the place is that God is very much present. It is therefore a place, secondly, of total disturbance. It's not a place of rest. It's a place where the fire isn't quenched, where the worm dies not. It speaks to us of restlessness, of some gnawing corruption. One of the things we need to understand as hell is portrayed in the scriptures is that that there is no common grace there. Even in this world, in this fallen, suffering world, there are so many things to alleviate sadness and suffering. There's there's family, there's work, there's friends, there's the beauty of creation. Even for the worst people and the worst experiences, There is the grace of life, as the scriptures refer to it, but there is none of that in hell. Grace is absent. And therefore it is a place of total suffering. The fire that never shall be quenched. The worm that dies not. Remember how uh, Dives in the Luke 16 passage wants just one drop of water on his tongue. The, passage, the quotation here uh, that's used by Jesus three few times in Mark 9 is taken from Isaiah chapter 66 and verse 24. It's right at the end of the prophecy of Isaiah. It talks about, they shall go forth and look upon the carcasses of the men that have transgressed against me, for their worm shall not die, neither shall their fire be quenched, and they shall be an abhorring unto all flesh. And so Jesus lifts that out and says, don't just think that's 700 years out of date. I underline you for you the reality of this place. It's a place of total suffering, of God's omnipotence pressing down upon the sinner. Jonathan Edwards, in his preaching on this subject, He made it clear that we should see God as holding up the sinner with one hand while pouring down upon him wrath and judgment with the other. Unless he held him up with the one hand, he couldn't bear what God had to pour on him with the other. A place of total despair. Despair because of remorse. Despair because of guilt. A place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. The next question, when does hell begin? Well, it doesn't begin in this life. There's nothing in this life, there's no experience that anybody could ever have, however bad it is, that is as bad as hell. But it begins for those who die outside of Christ at the moment of death. Luke chapter 16 makes that clear. It came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. 
And in hell he lift up his eyes, being in torments, and seeth Abraham afar off, and Lazarus in his bosom. If heaven is instant for the believer, the moment he passes into eternity, so is hell. The moment someone dies, their soul goes to punishment or to blessing. Of course, there's more to come. The day of judgment will bring a uniting of the body with the soul and a consigning of that body and soul to either heaven or hell. It begins at the moment of death, or we can think of the second coming of Christ. If people, well, there will be people alive then. For some, it will be a day of blessing, but for some, it will be a day of flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power, his second coming. And then we come perhaps to the most solemn question of all. How long does hell last? And the answer is forever and ever. And there are two reasons for that. The first is because no punishment that any created being could suffer could ever atone for their sins. There's no merit just in the mere suffering for our sins. And therefore, no punishment we could ever endure could expiate our sins and release us from hell. And the second, to take up one particular heresy called conditional immortality or annihilationism, is this, that it is a conscious continuing punishment because immortality, that is the ability to live forever, is not a gift that comes to us at the end of our lives, but it's part of being human. It's part of being created in the image of God. And therefore, because we are created in the image of God, once we have come into this world, we go on forever and ever. If heaven is forever, so is hell. No escape. And we see that again in the teaching of Christ in Matthew chapter 25, for example, and verse 46. And these shall go into everlasting, go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into life eternal. Both are everlasting, both are eternal. Think of what the Puritan Thomas Watson says. Thus it is in hell. They would die, but they cannot. The wicked shall be always dying, but never dead. The smoke of the furnace ascends forever and ever. Oh, who can endure this to be ever upon the rock? The word ever breaks the heart. Wicked men now think the Sabbath long and think a prayer long. But oh, how long would it be to lie in hell? forever and ever where their worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched there's a very telling illustration of the eternity of hell in the preaching of John Wesley and he quotes 
from an early church father called Cyprian. And Cyprian makes this illustration. Of course, we're going back centuries here. He says, imagine the world as a great big ball of sand. A great big ball made up of grains of sand. Same size as, as the world. Now imagine that one grain of sand is destroyed every 1,000 years. And think how long, therefore, it would take to destroy the whole world. But that would be nothing to eternity. How long does hell last? It lasts forever. So this is the teaching of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. And there are clear applications that he is making here. If we're just remembering the fact that we are going through Mark's gospel here. There are clear applications. And the first is this. He's saying we must be ruthless with sin. And he says this in terms of a very vivid translation or a vivid illustration, I should say, but clearly not to be taken literalistically, clearly not. If thy hand offend thee, cut it off. It is better for thee to enter into life maimed than having two hands to go into hell, into the fire that never shall be quenched. If thy foot offend thee, cut it off, in the same teaching. If thine eye offend thee, pluck it out. I think it's in the, one of the sermons of Dr. Lloyd-Jones. Um, he mentions he came across somebody who had no eye. They'd lost an eye, and when he probed about it, he found that they'd taken this teaching literalistically. Well, we, of course, we're not to do that. But what it is saying is this. You must have a zero-tolerance policy towards sin. Hands can do violence. Feet can go places where you shouldn't go. Eyes can lust and envy and hate. He's saying you should nip it in the bud. The best time to kill a snake is when it's in the egg. Either Jesus is saying you defeat sin or sin will defeat you. And in that sense, if there's something that rises up, you need to deal with it. Be ruthless. It's part of the teaching of the New Testament concerning mortification. Put to death the deeds of the body. And through Christ, of course, we can do that. By the, and only through Christ. Only by the grace that is in us through the new birth and through the renewal of us in the image of Christ, by the fact that we've not only died to sin, but we've been raised to newness of life in Christ, we have the resources to do what we should do, but we've got to do it. That's really the context. Let me make another application. There's no mercy in holding back on this subject, is there? Of course, the Bible and the great preaching heroes of our faith doesn't just speak about nothing else, but it does have this note in it. Knowing the terror of the Lord, says the Apostle Paul, we persuade men. We want them to know about the love of God. We want them to know about the blood of Christ that cleanses us from all sin. But they need to understand the terror of the Lord, the fear of the Lord. 
If they're going to understand the fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, they have to understand why Emmanuel was hung there for three hours of darkness as God hid his face from his son. They need to understand the black sky, the the jet black sky, in order to understand the brightness of the rainbow. And I venture to say that one of the problems with evangelical preaching and gospel preaching these days is that people, yes, they get a grip, they get a grasp to some extent of the love of God, but they don't really understand why there needs to be the love of God because they don't understand about hell. And it was, in fact, a loss of this subject, this solemn subject from the churches beginning at the end of the 19th century which has led us into the present condition, I believe, in our nation and in the churches, as to where the gospel is perceived to be irrelevant. We need to just take note, do we not, of the solemnity and the power of what Christ says here. But we also need to see how this magnifies to us and tells us of the love of God. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Either you have to know Christ and believe in Christ, either you have to repent of your sins and turn to Christ, or you will go to hell. And that's true of every single person in our world. 